Amen. Lord, you alone are great. That word gets used a lot, but nobody else deserves it but you. And Lord, you are a great, a holy, and an awesome God. And we come humbly before you now, and we ask that you would be our teacher. Lord, may man decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. Lord, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Go ahead and grab a seat. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 8, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. We're going to finish up looking at uh, a guy tonight who is in God's Hall of Fame, and the more I read about him, I, I can't figure out why. But it just is a constant encouragement to me of God's grace, amen? Because sometimes we look at people that are in God's Hall of Fame, you know, in Hebrews 11, or Hall of Faith, as I should say, but places where people that God calls this man a mighty man of valor, and certainly we see that he has times when he does really well, but we also see times where he blows it big time. But you know what, doesn't that remind you of you? Amen? Amen? Sometimes doing great, walking with God, on fire for the Lord, sharing your faith, and other times, not so much. But praise God for His grace, amen? So tonight we're going to finish looking at one of the most unlikely deliverers and judges for all the children of Israel, a man who was chosen by God to deliver Israel from its life of fruitlessness and bondage to the Midianites, a bondage that was a result of their own evil. Remember, they turned away from God, and they remained in rebellion, so the Lord brought the Midianites down, a godless, idol-worshipping people, to put them into bondage. And rebellion will bring about righteous judgment. And God would use, again in this case, these godless people. But we also talked about how rebellion brings fruitlessness. Because remember what happened for seven years. Imagine doing this. Imagine working all year long, planting and raising your, not only your crops, but your livestock. And then right when it came to harvest time, in would swoop the Midianites and just take your entire crop and wipe out all of your livestock and leave you with nothing. Working all year long, your once a year paycheck, they hand it to you and they sweep by and rip it out of your hand. And that's what the Midianites did for seven years. Now, no wonder, and this, the thing that amazes me is it took them seven years to cry out to God. I've been crying out for about a week, I think, right? No food, you know, under total bondage, and it took seven straight years for them to finally cry out to the Lord. And when they did cry out to the Lord, they were overwhelmed by the, the, the size of their enemy, you know, that there's a 135,000 man army. They said that they were as overwhelming and as great as a number as locusts to them. There were camels without number. So the people were impoverished. They were broken. They were desperate. They were brought to the end of themselves. They saw the army that they were against as being something so overwhelming they could never fight against them. So finally they said, oh, we got nowhere else to look but up. And you know, guys, may we never fall into the trap of making God the last resort. You know, we do that, don't we? Sometimes it's like, well, all I can do is pray. What do you mean all you can do is pray? All I can do is talk to the creator of the universe face to face about my situation. That's a great thing to do, amen? And that's where we ought to start, not where we ought to finish. And so the children of Israel cry out to the Lord because of their poverty, oppression, and fruitlessness. It takes all of that to put their eyes back on God. And it's often the case that we realize that Jesus is all we need when He's all that we have. So too may we view unfair circumstances when our lives are bearing little or no fruit 
and realize again that God is using our circumstances for His glory if we will let Him. In reaching out to the rebellious and fruitless, the Lord first sent a prophet to remind them. So here they are, they cry out to the Lord, so the first thing He does is send a prophet to them and reminds them of everything God had already done. People, why do we continue to study the Bible? How many people here have read through the entire Bible before? Okay, many of us. Well, you know, I've, I don't know how many times, but here's the point. I still need to keep reading it because I need to keep being reminded and keep, again, being, being encouraged and strengthened in my walk. And every time I read it, God will show me something new and something different. But he's reminding them because here they are crying out. He says, by the way, remember, I delivered you out of bondage in Egypt. Remember, I was the one who led you through the wilderness. Remember, I was the one that provided for you and defeated your enemies. So too, when you and I are in rebellion and living fruitless lives, we need to look back to the cross of Christ and remember all that He has done for us. God only reminded them of what He did for them, but He raised up for them this most unlikely deliverer. Remember how this guy started? He was a reluctant farmer. I love how God just uses random people. You know, for us, they're random. For him, he chose them. But they're, you know what I mean? It's like he didn't always call the princes or the, the kings. It was all, very rarely did he ever do that. What he would do instead is take this random, here's this guy, what is he doing when we find him, when the Lord comes to him? He's hiding. Now, you know, when you're looking for a king, you know, caves and hiding in wine presses, probably not where you want to look first. The guy who's hiding already, not the guy you want to lead. But in this case, God's going to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And when he shows up to talk to this guy who's hiding, this man by the name of Gideon, whose name means warrior, mighty warrior, no less, and wasn't much of that. But the Lord saw him and said, called him a mighty man of valor while he was hiding. Because God saw who he was going to become. And I'm amazed that he called him that because tonight we're going to see how he finishes up and it's not too good. But praise God for His grace that this mighty man of valor ends up in the hall of faith. Hiding from the enemy, he doubted God's word. He asked him to prove his promises. He was one who had to see before he could believe. He starts off as a coward. He becomes a conqueror and he ends as a compromiser. The first chapter, he was a coward. He wouldn't do what God said. Remember the Lord told him, oh no, no I'm not doing that, no. Not going to happen. Well, then you got to do this thing for me. Well, Lord, you got to show me something else. Even when he obeyed, he wouldn't obey completely. Remember the Lord told him, tear down the idols. So what did he do? He did it when? At night. He did it so nobody could see him. Okay, Lord, I'll serve you, but I'm not doing it if anybody's watching. You know, and sometimes that's how we are with our faith. Yo, Lord, I love you as long as no one else is watching. Lord, I'll serve you with my whole heart as long as I don't do it in front of other people. You know, Lord, just you and me hanging out of my house by myself, I'll praise you, but don't get me in front of other people because I'm just not going to do it. And you know what? The Bible says we need to confess Him before men. If we confess Him before men, He will confess us before his fa- our Father in heaven. And while, you know what? This man was, goes from a coward in hiding to being a conqueror, as we saw last week. Chapter 6, he went from a doubter to a deliverer. He doubted God, he questioned God, and God answered all his questions repeatedly. Aren't you glad that God is so patient with us? He asks him questions over and over and over. Remember, he puts the fleece out and he says, okay, if everything else is wet, but okay, what if every, and he changes it to test God. And he says, God, if you really meant what you said, then do this. That, what a slap in the face that is to God. God, if you knew what you were talking about, then God always knows what he's talking about. Amen. We don't often know what we're talking about. So he questions God 
And then, do you really care? Do you know what you're doing, Lord? Will you really take care of me? He puts him to the test. And he goes from being a doubter to being a deliverer. And then last week in chapter 7, I titled the message, Small Enough for God to Use, how God tests our faith. He takes away all of our resources, so all we can do is trust in Him. And you know, sometimes riches are the biggest stumbling block. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into heaven. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, by the way, from the world standard, if you're in this room tonight, you're rich. If you didn't know that. Go to a third world country with me sometime, and if you know what you're having for breakfast tomorrow, you're rich. People all over the world have no idea. If you have electricity, running water, a roof over your head, you're rich compared to the rest of the world. But we need to make sure we don't trust in our riches, but we stay desperate for God. And it began by him taking away the resources. So what did he do to Gideon? Gideon was petrified with 32,000 guys, if you remember. And then the Lord said, you know, you got too many guys. He's like, but wait a minute. They got over 100,000 more guys than us. How in the world are we supposed to go... Lord, no, 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 no. Uh, they have too many guys. We, we have plenty of guys. We need more guys. And the Lord said, no, here's what I'm going to do. You go tell whoever's afraid to go home. So he tells them, and 22,000 guys went home. Now he's got 10,000. So it was 4 to 1. Now it's 10 to 1. So then he says, go over to the, you know, the, the springs, and depending on how they drink, and those who put their face in the water and drink, put in one side, and those who take their hand to the water and drink, put them on the other side. Well, 9,700 of them put their face in the water, and he said, send them home. Now he's got 300 guys against 135,000. That's, that's rough. That's 450 to 1. Now the Lord says, okay, now I can work. Because you know what? If you had any bigger army, you would think you were tough. But you know what? Now when I win the battle, you're going to know that I am. That I'm great. And I'm faithful. And I'm going to get all the glory. So then not only does he reduce his army, but then he tells him, here's how I want you to fight. Uh, You know, put all the swords down. You don't need those. Uh, I want you to get a pitcher and put a light inside the pitcher. And I want you to have a trumpet. And that's what you're going to fight with. And the Lord's like, are you... Can you imagine being... A trumpet, a pitcher, and a candle. That's what I'm fighting with. That's what you're fighting with. Against 135,000 guys, I got 300. That's what we're doing. So they start coming down the mountain, right? But before he went, remember he had to go and God had to encourage him again. Remember he went down to the camp and he heard the guy saying that there was a dream and that's Gideon and they're going to come down and wipe us out, remember? So then he said, okay, I'll go. And you know what's amazing is when that pitcher broke, the light shone through, just like the earthen vessels that we are, when we're broken, the light of God shines through us, amen? A man or a woman is the only thing more valuable when broken, everything else loses value, we become more valuable when broken, and they blew the trumpets, well, they see these lights coming down the hill, and they think that each one of these lights represents like a regiment of men, because usually only one guy blows a trumpet. And one guy, you know, so they hear this loud crash, and they see this light, and they see him coming from every direction, and they think they're being overwhelmed by hundreds of thousands of men, and it's 300 guys. God can do anything, amen? And so what do they do? These people start turning around killing each other, because they think that the, that the, the, the people they're fighting are the guys who've come into the camp. And they start killing each other, and then they start running away. And then... At that point, Gideon turns around and says, okay, get the other people to come down and help us. And Ephraim comes down, and they start guarding the waterways, and they capture the princes. And now we come to chapter 8. 
And he's been this conqueror, and all these things have happened. God's given him these fruitful victories. As we come to this portion, this one-type coward has now become this conqueror. But tonight, I titled the message, Conqueror Turned Compromiser. Because what we're going to see very clearly in the text is something we all need to be warned about. Is sometimes we can get complacent in our walk with God. We get to the point where we're doing really, really well. And we cease to be desperate. Something each of us is susceptible to is becoming a compromiser. Having been used by God, pridefully beginning to think that we are a key element in making it happen. Or we deserve or have something coming. I don't want what's coming to me, how about you? No thanks. Hellfire, not interested. But that's what I deserve, amen? I don't want what I deserve. I cry out, grace, mercy, that's what I want for me. And the Lord would have us exhibit that to others as well. But we start listening to the praise of men and we start thinking we've done something wonderful. Having won the battle, maybe letting our guard down and leaving ourselves open for the enemy. And that's exactly what is going to happen to Gideon tonight. But before it does, we're going to see him conquering for most of the chapter. And so if you're taking notes, tonight we're going to see several great examples with clear applications for our lives today. As conqueror in the first two-thirds of the text, here's the four points we're going to see, actually five. Number one, how to deal with a prideful or critical brother. Anybody ever dealt with that before? Someone who's prideful or critical within the body of Christ. You know the person who calls you up and lets you know everything wrong with your life? The prideful and critical one, right? The one with the beam in their eye knocking people over every time they turn their head. But how do you deal with that person? How do you respond? You know, the one thing about being in ministry, I tell pastors, guys who pray about being pastors, I go, you know what? If you're easily offended, don't do it. Don't better do something else. Because the guy who gets attacked the most is the one who talks the most. So there it is. You know what I mean? And you know what? Here's the point. You got to know that you know that you know that God is the one who's called you and you need to be faithful to his calling upon your life. And we're going to see Gideon respond in a really gracious way. Way better than I would have to these knuckleheads from Ephraim. We'll see that tonight. We're also going to see how does God feel about those who refuse to get involved. Does God have an opinion about complacency or indifference? Does God care? Well, I mean, I'm not getting in the way. I'm not causing you static. I'm just over here on the sidelines. It's all good, right? Well, we'll see how God feels about that. Then number three, we're going to see the past obedience gives us increased boldness in the future. When you obey in the past, you'll find yourself being bolder in the future. Because when you obey, you get to see God work. And the more you see God work, the bolder you're going to be going forward. Fourthly, we're going to see those consequences of complacency. So we're going to see how does he feel about it. Then we're going to see the consequences of it. And then fifth, we're going to see Gideon being God's righteous instrument. God's instrument of righteous judgment. These are all things that apply to our lives. Then lastly... We're going to go from the conqueror to the compromiser. And we're going to see that Gideon's actions speak louder than his words. Guys, compromise is most often seen not in our words, but our actions. We can say all the right things, but not live it. And we're going to watch Gideon and see how he's going to proclaim. And the words are going to be really good. We're going to watch his actions in the end. And he does not finish well at all. So conqueror turned compromiser. The first Five points, we're going to see him as a conqueror. And first, how to deal with a prideful or critical brother. Again, great applications, no doubt, for probably all of us, either at this very moment 
or soon. Amen? And if somebody starts treating you this way, maybe you'll know that you are the prideful or critical brother. Now look at verse 1 of Judges 8. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? Now the men of Ephraim at the end of chapter 7, when the battle was already basically won and all the people were running away, he sent messengers up into the hills to bring the people down to gather up those who were running away. So the victory's been won. God's won a great battle. And the men of Ephraim come down and they actually capture two princes, Oreb and Zeb, whom they killed and brought their heads to Gideon. But when they get to Gideon, they want to know, why is it that we weren't a part of the plan to begin with? Now, does this seem self-centered or what? God brings a great victory, and they're like, well, yeah, you won a victory, but how come I wasn't involved? How come you didn't call me? I wanted to be on the planning meeting. You know, how come I didn't get to... You know what, guys? It's not about us. It's about Him. And too often, that, that we fall into this trap that the victory being won isn't enough. We want to make sure that we're getting our props. Make sure that we're getting noticed at the same time. How could it be successful? I wasn't there. How could God have moved? I wasn't even there that day. How could God have done great things? He, I mean, I didn't even show I was sick and people got saved. How's that possible? And this is kind of Ephraim. The battle's been won, but instead of rejoicing, they're critical of the strategy. Why wasn't I invited? Why wasn't I there in the battle? Why wasn't I able to help with the decision-making process? And it's so like human nature. Instead of rejoicing in what God has done, are bitter because I wasn't involved, invited, or being praised for it. Too often our focus, instead of being on God and Him being glorified, is our, our promoting of our own names. He says, why have you done this to us by not calling us? The victory was won. Again, they should have been rejoicing. And I wasn't involved. I'm not being praised. Too often we're so much like Ephraim because we are the ones who want to, again, make a great name for ourselves. We want praise. We want position. We want popularity. Our focus, passion, must be not on our name, but His name. Not promoting ourselves or our church, but Christ alone. When it comes right down to it, who cares what church you go to? That sounds weird coming from a pastor, doesn't it? We're all part of His church, those of us who are truly saved. Amen? And so we're promoting Jesus Christ. And we get to heaven, they're not going to have a Baptist section and a... Alright, all the Baptists over here and all the, you know, we'll be playing the organ for you guys. And, you know... <laughs> Pentecostals over here, we'll have some chandeliers for you to swing from. And... I think it'll be heaven. We're all one in Christ, amen? And we want to promote Him. Him and His name. Let Him being glorified. Rather than rejoicing in great victory, the men of Ephraim, look at it says there, they went to, and, it, and they reprimanded Him sharply. You know, that brought a lot of joy to my heart, actually, because I thought, that happens to me a lot. You know, and He was totally in the center of God's will and got reprimanded. So when you get reprimanded, it doesn't always mean you're wrong. Often the person reprimanding you needs to get right. Amen? 
So how is Gideon going to respond? He's won this great battle. He's got 300 guys. God moves mightily. They go down and wipe these guys out. 135,000, 120,000 were dead already, as we're going to see. And these guys come along and go, yeah, well, that was pretty good, but if you'd had me here. You know how many of the 300 guys died, by the way? We're going to see it. Zero. How does it get any better than that? 300 against 135,000, 120,000 other guys died. None of your guys die, and someone's being critical. People are getting saved, and people are like, yeah, but you know, you, you know, I think you should do this. You know, and, and I'll tell you something. If, if this is you, well, God bless you. But here's the thing. It'll be, you'll be amazed. On a Sunday morning, we, two week, I think it was three weeks ago, we had like 18 people get saved. Praise God, right? Great stuff. The first three people up to talk to me had something critical to say. I'm like, were you here today? Were you paying attention at all? God moved in a mighty and a powerful way. Amen? And they come up, well, you know, the scene right here in the Greek part of the past participle of the aorist tense of the verb, it really says, I'll stop it. <laughs> Wouldn't you just stop it already? Amen? You know, because it's just, you know, and I usually just say, okay, well, I'll look into that. I mean, you know, let's just, let me go pray with somebody. People standing in line weeping, and there's, got, there's the people standing in line to be critical. You know, you should have said, hey, God bless you. It's Okay. <laughs> Call me, come down to the office, and I'll talk to you. But man, it's amazing how that happens. And that's what's happening here. This great battle's been won, and what happens? Ephraim's right there. Oh, man. Reprimanding him sharply. How dare you go down with 300 guys and wipe 120,000 out in total obedience to the hand of Almighty God? What were you thinking? What's the matter with you? Now, me, I might say, losers. I mean, where were you? You didn't pay. I blew the trumpet. How come you didn't show up? He blew the trumpet to invite people to come. You were napping. It's not my... Now, that's how we respond, right? That's not how we're supposed to respond. Now, watch how he responds to these brothers in the Lord who are being critical of him. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? You know what he's saying? He says, I've done nothing in comparison to the great things you've accomplished. He says, the best that we have in our vineyard doesn't even compare to the gleaning. You know what the gleaning is? After the harvest is over and they've harvested everything, it's like the few grapes here and there they get left that the poor people can come through and pick off or the little bit of wheat that is left, they can come and pick like the fragments that are left over. And what he's telling them is the fragments of your vineyard is greater than the best produce that we have. And what he's saying is, you guys are so fruitful, the best we've done doesn't compare to the least of what you have. This is called, you don't overcome evil with evil, you co- overcome evil with good. And it also, another way to say it is in the scriptures is that a soft answer turns away wrath. Could have said, I knew somebody prideful like you. I heard of a guy one time who thought he had to be involved in everything. You know what his name was? Lucifer. How you feeling? You know what I mean? <laughs> Could have compared him, because he wasn't Lucifer, right? Going to God and trying to be in charge and trying to be all that, right? Could have compared him to Lucifer. Instead, he said, you know what? I'm nothing compared to you guys. He took the lower seat, as the Lord would call us to do. And he says, God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. 
And what was I able to do in comparison with you? He said, you guys captured the two princes of Midian. What have I done that compares with that? Well, I would have to beg to differ. All you did, bro, was go down with 300 people, blow some trumpets, and send 135,000 guys running, kill 120,000 of them, but they captured two guys who were running away scared and stopped to get some water. I'm thinking, I'm thinking what Gideon did was way better and way more powerful, but I love his humility. I love his humility. He just says, you know what you did is awesome. And instead of pointing fingers, he says, man, it's so great to see what God is doing in your life. After they've captured them running away, he congratulates them and encourages them. Gideon shows us the heart of a peacemaker. Again, a soft answer turns away wrath. That's Proverbs 15.1. And it's, you know, Gideon chose not to entangle them in an argument, but to calm them down with loving words. So how do you and I deal with a critical brother? We can either engage them in battle or be humble and loving and gracious toward them and have a soft answer, turn away wrath. What is the end result we want? Do we want to win the battle or do we want to win our brother? Now which is it? Do we want to walk away in intimate fellowship with our brother when it's over or do you want to prove how smart we are or how much we're doing? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And look what it says at the end of that verse. Then the anger toward him subsided when he said that. They were angry and it went away. I know I've used this illustration several times, but it's the perfect one. I cut this guy off in San Jose. I come around this loop, and it's this loop where these lanes merge, and there's palm trees. It's kind of a blind spot. It's where I used to work in downtown San Jose. And I came around this corner, and as soon as I came around the corner, I look in my rearview mirror, and this guy is on my bumper, And I came to the very quick realization, I just cut this guy off big time. I never saw him. I didn't have a clue he was there. He was in my blind spot. It's 100% my fault. So he's not very happy, as you can imagine. He's flashing me signs and signals in my rearview mirror. I don't think he was waving high or anything. He pulls up next to me, rolls his window down, and out come the words. And I roll my window down, and and I said, Sir... Can I say something to you? I said, will you please, please forgive me? I am 100% at fault. I didn't see you. I feel terrible. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And he said, oh, that's no problem. (laughs) He wanted to kill me and my entire family. I told him I was wrong when I was. And the soft answer turned away the wrath. And here's what, exactly what Gideon has done. Soft answer, turning away wrath. Number two, how does God feel about those who refuse to get involved? The complacent or the indifferent? Look at verse four. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and 300 men who were with him, notice how many are left still? 300, all of them. He and 300 men were with him, crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Man, I like this. They went and they killed 120,000 guys. There's 15,000 left. These guys have gone, we're going to see in a little bit, over 30 miles. And they've crossed over the Jordan and they've left the promised land and they're still chasing them. There's 15,000 guys left and 300 guys are chasing them. 300 guys with trumpets 
chasing 15,000 guys with swords and camels and shields. Has their faith grown or what? I'm thinking they all run away. Hey, good enough. They left. God answered, no. They're like, oh, they keep going after them. And they're exhausted now. And they're, you could have said, okay, we're exhausted. We've gone as far. We've chased them out of the promised land. They're gone. It's good enough. We don't have any food or water. Time to go home. But they're still pursuing them. I love this. You know, they're still outnumbered 50 to 1. 50 to 1. But they're like, dude, that ain't nothing. It was 450 to 1 yesterday. So 50 to 1, that ain't nothing. I saw what God did, 135,000, 15,000. God's going to wipe them out. So let's just keep going after them. You know what? You've been cured of cancer. You know, praying for a cold is real easy, isn't it? Amen? When you've seen God do great and awesome things, all of a sudden the smaller things are nothing. And this is where they're at. Then it says in verse 5, Then he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I have an idea that the 15,000 people had gone by this very same way right before them. Right? They're chasing them. Probably heading the same direction. At least saw the cloud of dust of them going by. And up shows Gideon. He's got 300 guys behind him. This guy saw 15,000 guys going by. He's like, now wait a minute. You want me to give you food to help you go get there? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because if he finds out I gave you food, he's going to come back and kill me. So how about I don't give you anything until you show me that you have the king in your hand? Now the only problem with this, the people in Sokoth were of the tribe of Gad, which would make them what? Israelites. Which means they should have been on whose side? Gideon's. But you know what? They didn't want to be on his side because they were afraid that the victory might not be won, so they decided, we'll just sit this one out. We're not going to be on anybody's side. Guys, that doesn't work. The Lord said, you're either for me or against me. You cannot choose not to get involved. No decision is a decision. Complacency and indifference is serving the devil. Ooh. Ouch. Like that, Pastor Dave, right? I mean, here's the point. If we're not serving God, who are we serving? You got to serve somebody, right? Bob Dylan. You got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. You're going to serve somebody. But these guys were more concerned about the enemy, enemy maybe finding out than doing God's will. If I do that, the enemy might find out. And if he does, he might come back and get me. So I'm not going to help. I'm not going to be on anybody's side. I'm just going to be indifferent. I'm not going to do anything. Now, how does the Lord feel about this? It says in verse 6, And the leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? You got them now? Let me see. Show them to us. You're going to catch them. Yeah, right. I saw that. They have a huge army. You got 300 guys, and they're all tired, and they don't have any food. You're toast. You're going to lose. We're not helping you. No way. Guys, if we start looking at things from a physical perspective, we're going to sit on the sidelines a lot. Amen? We need to look at things from an eternal perspective and realize that our God is greater than any circumstances and get involved in what God is doing. 
Like so many today who want to play both sides of the fence. I want to follow God and follow the world. I want to follow many gods just in case one of them's right. This is Santa Cruz. That's very popular. I believe in all the gods. Guess what? Jesus said, He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And you can only believe in Him or, no, or nobody else. You know, if you believe in someone else and Him, it doesn't work that way. You have to believe in Him alone. And sadly, people try to play both sides. Guys, it's time to choose a side and have it reflected in our actions. Sokoth chose not to help, and in doing so, they sided with the enemy by doing nothing. We can side with the enemy by doing nothing. We can want the comfortable cruise ship Christianity, right? Come to Jesus and your life will be perfect. You will never hear me say that. Come to Jesus and you'll just be on the cruise ship to heaven. You'll never have any problems ever again. Jesus said the exact opposite. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. Oh, how happy are you? For they reviled and persecuted the prophets who went before you. Guys, if you're on the cruise ship to heaven, you're not serving God. How's that? It's true. Show me one person in the Bible that had no static when they were serving God. Show me one that had static less time than they didn't. In the Bible. They got nothing but static. Why? Because the world is lost, and when you shine a halogen light in their eyes, they don't like it. They don't like it. Talk about high beams, man. You know, boom, God, right? People don't like that. They won't get involved if it costs them something. They they faithlessly see things from a worldly perspective. So here's what Gideon says. Now remember, this is gracious Gideon, right? He just had a soft answer for Ephraim, didn't he? So I'll have a real soft answer here too, right? Well, let's, let's look. So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. What happened to gracious Gideon? Ephraim was interested in serving God, even though part of what his motivation was wrong. But in this case, these guys are siding with the enemies of God. And when we side with the enemies of God and we rebel against God, get ready because discipline's coming. Because those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. Amen? He wants to draw us back. He doesn't discipline us to destroy us, but to draw us back into fellowship. And so here, this is what is happening. Now, I love Gideon because Gideon, remember, asking for the fleece just a few chapters ago, asking for reassurance. Now, what does he say? When? For this cause, when the Lord has, if, not if, when He delivers these guys into my hand, I'll be back. I'll be back. And when I come, you're getting thrashed with thorns and briars. This is an opportunity to repent even then. I will tear your flesh. Now, verse 8 and 9. Then He went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered as the men of Sokoth had answered. So He also spoke to the men of Penuel and said, When I come back in peace... I will tear down this tower. The tower was the greatest building in town. And he said, okay guys, you won't help us? I'll be back, and when I get back, tower on the ground. That's what's going to happen if you don't want to help. Again, rebellion has consequences. How does God feel about those who sit on the sidelines? 
Those who are complacent and indifferent, doing nothing for the kingdom of God. No decision is a decision. We're either for Him or we're against Him. Next point. We'll see some more about this uh, complacency and how God deals with it in a few verses. Past obedience gives us increased boldness in the future. It says, Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Kekar, and their armies were with them, about 15,000. So here's where we get the number. Keep reading. All who had left in the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. 120,000 guys died at the hands of 300 guys blowing trumpets. That's a God thing. Amen? They killed each other. There's 15,000 left. The 300 guys are continuing to chase them. And they're running away from them. Guys, 300 plus God is a majority. One plus God is a majority. You plus God is a majority. Over 5,000, 50,000, 15,000, 15 million. You plus God is the majority. Verse 11. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in the tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. If you take notes, while the camp felt secure, if you underline stuff in your Bible, Gideon tracked these guys, and you look on a map, he's tracking them through the mountains. Man, I love this. I, you know, I, when I read the Bible, I get these visual pictures, and I see 15,000 guys going through the mountains, and 300 guys chasing them. And no matter how far away they get, these 300 guys just won't let up, and they just keep coming after them. And again, if you're outnumbered 50 to 1, usually you're running away. Only if God is on your side do you have this kind of boldness, this kind of faith. Obedience will bring a path to victory. It's not always easy, but it's always worth it. And it says there, they attacked the army while the camp felt secure. You know why they felt secure? They left the land of promise, they traveled over the mountains, and they figured they were probably far enough away now that they had nothing to worry about. Guys, there's no place to hide from God. No matter how far away or where you think you can go, and now God's not watching me anymore, and I can just, I'm fine here, and I'm not going to face any judgment here, and it's okay. I'm going to be fine if I get this far away. There's no place to hide. Many people today are secure, think they're secure from God's judgment, and God's judgment will come upon them quickly, suddenly, and completely. Now, they go in and they attack them at night. 300 guys go into the camp and attack them again, and all they got with them is trumpets. And I don't even know how they won, but they did. Because the Bible says they did. Amen? But they just continued to trust God. Verse 12. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. 15,000 guys, dead. Got the two kings, bringing them back with me, just as God had told him and just as he had boldly proclaimed. Do you notice Gideon now has a great amount of faith? Where did this come from? Seeing God work before. Remember, he didn't want to go 32,000 guys against 135,000. He was afraid. Show me a fleece, Lord. I'm not going if you don't. Show me something. Now he's got 300 guys chasing 15,000, and he's doing with gusto. And when God puts them in my hands, when, not if, when, I'll be back. And I'm going to thrash you guys. It's what he told the, the men in Sokoth. Now, 
I find that this is so true in our own lives, like I said before. You know, often we'll have these smaller trials that prepare us for the greater one. David fought a lion and a bear, and he was ready to fight Goliath, right? And often we'll go through these other trials, and it's in preparation for what's next. And praise the Lord. You know, today my, my daughter's class, they have their senior chapel, and the first girl who spoke got up and just talked about all the ailments she's had in her lifetime. And she said, you know, people would say it's unanswered prayer, but she said, no, I believe God has answered prayer because He's going to take everything I've been through and use it for His glory in the future. I don't know how, but I know He will. And I was like, amen. There's an 18-year-old girl that's grasping it. She named all the things wrong with her. It was a gnarly list. It went on for a long time. Just really, I mean, where she spent a year at home, couldn't leave her room, all kinds of stuff that she went through. And she said, you know, God's going to use it for His glory. I don't know how, but He will. And you know what? When we're going through trials, we need to trust that God's preparing us for something greater. Now we, we go back. He's coming back now with those kings with Him. Who's he going to go visit? He's coming back. I told you I'd be back. I'm coming back. So now we're going to see the consequences of complacency and indifference, a faithless and rebellious walk. Look at verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Harris, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkoth and its elders, 77 men. This is a divine appointment. He catches this guy from Sukkoth and says, all right, he interrogates him. That's what the word says. He sits him down and says, I want to know who all the leaders are. He's writing a list of those who are going to be thrashed. This is what's happening. This is the thrashing list. You know, this is, the, this is the naughty list. This is the you're in big trouble list. This is you're going to be an example for all of the people in the city that next time that God asks you to do something, you say, yes, Lord, list. So he gets the names of the 77 guys. This is not by chance. Divine appointments come every single day. How many of you have been praying for that? Divine appointments. Keep praying. I shared that on Sunday night. I go Monday, I'm sitting in a parking lot, a guy pulls up in his truck and parks his truck, he's in a big huge Caltrans truck that covers like 37 spots or something. He pulls this thing in and he just keeps pulling in and pulling in and literally like I'm looking out my window and his grill's like right there. And he gets out of the car and he's like, are you okay? And I, I didn't scare you. I go, no, I just was kind of hoping you'd stop. I, I'm glad you did. We end up talking about the Lord for an hour. You know, God, divine appointments. Amen. Had a Da Vinci Code thing in my car, gave it to him. We talked about the Lord. Pray for divine appointments. God will bring them every single day. I'm convinced of it. Amen? And so we see here this divine appointment, in this case, gives him the information that he needs. Look at verse 15. Then he came to the men of Zilkoth and said, Zeba and Zalmunna, you were asking about them before? Here they are. Remember those guys? Show me the money, you know, show me the kings. Here they are. Got both of them with me. And it says, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders, the 77 guys, of the city, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them, and he taught the men of Sukkah. <laughs> he whipped them. Now, some commentators believe that the way he did this was, and we don't know for sure, some people believe 
that he stripped all their clothes off and threw them in a patch of this stuff, and they had to work their way out. They'd be tore up. Others believe that he actually scourged them with thorns, which I tend to believe that's probably more accurate, only because, who's that a picture of? Jesus. Now remember, thorns came into existence in the garden when sin came, and so now Jesus is scourged, right? He had a crown of thorns upon his head, him taking our sin upon himself. Here's a picture of sin's consequences. And so we see here that their indifference did indeed cost them something. Verse 17. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Man, can indifference cost you something? How about you could die? How how about you could spend eternity separated from Almighty God? Complacency and indifference is nothing less than rebellion. And we might say, how come their consequences were worse? The other guys got whipped, these guys all died. I don't know. All I know is this. One, in my mind, can be a picture of divine discipline, the other of righteous judgment. Divine discipline's desire is to bring restoration where righteous judgment is ultimate and eternal for those who continue to refuse to repent. God is a God of grace. He is long-suffering, but He will not suffer always. Do you understand that? There's going to come a point in time when we will stand before Almighty God and either Jesus has paid for our sin or we pay for it ourselves. So now we're going to see Gideon being God's instrument of righteous judgment. Look at verse 18. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? Now Tabor was Gideon's hometown. And he's saying, you know, you killed some people from Tabor. What kind of men did you kill there? Now, from the text, we don't know how long ago that had happened. Because remember, the Midianites had been reigning there for seven years. And I think this shows us something. That when we think that we're getting away with something, these kings may have killed them five years ago. We don't know from the text. But at some point, they'd been in Tabar, they'd been ruthless, they'd killed some people there, and now Gideon's bringing it up. Oh, by the way, remember when you were in Tabar and you killed some people? What did those people look like that you killed when you were there? And look look what they say. These guys are not the sharpest tools in the shed by how they answer this question, but look what they say. So they answered and said, as you are, so were they. Each one of them resembled the son of a king. He said, they look like you. They look a lot like you. And they look like sons of kings, meaning they were handsome. They're buttering up Gideon. But Gideon's asking this question for a reason. You know why? Some Midianites had been in and killed his family, his brothers. And he's asking them, now you guys were in Tabor and you killed some guy. What did they look like? Oh, they look like you. Oh, my brothers look like me. Look at the next verse. Look what he says. Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. If you were here in previous chapters, remember the blood avenger, the family member, that when somebody killed someone in your family, they didn't have police in those days. So who brought about justice? The family member. So this, not only were they the kings of the evil people who God had given them deliverance from, but they had actually killed his own family. He's got several reasons to kill these guys. Now a lot of people struggle with the Old Testament. Why is there so much killing in there? But the truth is that it's righteous judgment. 
People struggle with the death penalty. You know, I don't. I don't. I think maybe if we executed it more, people would value life more. Amen? Amen. Is life devalued today or what? It's just a lump of tissue. Just kill it. It's no big deal. Everything is, is devaluing life all the time. And so these were his own family. And now it's not going to be pretty for these kings because they did confess. And, and this was his heart. He wanted to find out. He wanted them to confess what they had done. And you know what this reminds me of? Judgment Day. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and every man will confess he's a sinner. Muhammad, confessing he's a sinner to Jesus Christ. Osama bin Laden, confessing he's a sinner to Jesus Christ. We will all confess him now or we'll confess him later and eternity's hanging in the balance as to when we do it. Amen? Amen. And so we see here that confession will come and we see it in this case, he knows they're dead but he still says, okay, well I want to find out. And they confess, oh yeah, we did it. Okay. Verse 20. And he said to Jethro, his firstborn, rise, kill them. Now, I, I can't imagine ever having those words for my son. Son, kill them. That's what he told him. Son, kill them. And in one way, this may have even been an honor he was giving his son to avenge his uncle's deaths. To say, son, these guys are deserving to die, and I'm going to let you avenge it for us. And it says there, but the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. I can imagine that. Now watch it. Ziba and Zalmuna, these guys are not very smart. How these guys got to be kings, I got no idea. But listen to this. You're standing in front of a guy. He just ordered his son to kill you. The son doesn't do it. Is this kind of what you might say? Here's what he says. Here's what they say. Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. You know what they're saying? Your son's a wimp, he's a chicken, and so are you because you probably raised a kid just like yourself. Uh, I mean, that's what they did. So is your strength. Your strength means your children. So they're chickens, so you must be too. If you got a chicken for a son, you must have a chicken for a dad. You're saying this to a guy holding a sword, and you killed his brother's. And he just chased you down with 300 guys and wiped out 15,000. Not very sharp. But they're going to get the point in a second, right? Now look what it says. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. He gets up and stabs them both. Kills them both. They're dead. That strategy didn't work out so well for Zeba and Zalmunna. Pushing God in the corner and taunting God and trying to force God's hand, that that doesn't work out for you so much. Don't do that. You don't tell God what to do. He tells us what to do. Amen? We don't order God around. We seek orders from Him. So this conqueror. Now, crescent ornaments, we're going to move through this last portion quickly, but crescent ornaments here, these are moon-shaped ornaments that were on their camels' necks. And it's interesting that there's a religion today that has a moon-shaped crescent it uses as one of their symbols. Does anybody know who it is? The Muslims. Nothing new under the sun. And this was a symbol of Baal worship. So the Islamic faith, 
to, in my mind, was started with Baal worship. Nothing's changed. So the conqueror turned compromiser. Conqueror, he taught us how to deal with the prideful, critical brother. We saw how God feels about those who, refu- who refuse to get involved. We see the past obedience brings future boldness, the consequences of complacency. Now look at verse 18. Or excuse me, verse uh, 22. Now he's going to be the compromiser. Watch how quickly this happens. And we'll go through this fairly quickly. Then the men of Israel, Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So they said to Gideon, Be our king. Do we see this throughout Scripture with Israel? They're always wanting a king. Who's their king? God is. Is there a better king than God? Wouldn't you like to have God for the President of the United States? How would that be? I vote for him every time. I vote for God. Yay, God. We vote for God. Amen? So imagine if God was the president and we said, give us uh, Bill Clinton. Exactly. Ouch. So they're crying out for Gideon when they already got God. Now Gideon's going to look like he has the right answer. Because his words are going to be great, but his actions, not so much. They're crying out for a king. We know later in 1 Samuel they're finally going to get one. But we're going to see that these humble words of him saying, look what he says in verse 23, but Gideon said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Amen, Gideon. Good words. That's the right answer. But guess what? Those are his words, but his actions show something completely different. He says, the Lord be your king, but now he's going to start acting like he is the king. You know, kings amass certain things for themselves. You know what they like to have for themselves? Four things that Gideon's going to ask for. Wealth, power, women, and then allowing their sons to take their place. Right? Is that what kings like to do? Wasn't that what just offered them? You know what? You be our king and your son's after you. And he says, oh, no, no, the Lord be your king. Now, now, he doesn't take maybe a deep breath. But look what he says in verse 24. Here comes the compromise. Then Gideon said to them, I, I, would, I would like to make a request of you. I don't want to be the king, but um, how about if each one of you would give me an earring from your plunder? For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered and said, well, glad you give, give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's necks. Someone figured this out. Just the earrings would have weighed roughly 70 pounds of gold. Gold is selling for $644 an ounce today. I looked it up. You multiply that by 70 pounds, it's $721,280 worth of earrings. Is he amassing wealth for himself? I don't want to be the king, but you know, if you want to kick me down some gold, that would be okay. This is not a real servant's heart, is it? This is not somebody who's really... He's like, I don't want to be the king, but if you just give me a little wealth, maybe. Guys, can I encourage you with something? They gladly gave them because they were willing to let him be the king, but he was taking advantage of them. And this wealth 
pride, position, sexual immorality that brings all the kings down is going to start with him doing this. A general rule of thumb for Christian leaders, and I believe this, and, and we certainly practice it here, I believe that pastors should never live above their people in their flock. Ever. If anything, a little below is good. You know why? Because pastors should be servants, not someone who's elevated in some position. Pastor Chuck talks about that every year. He says, guys, you should live at the level or below the people in your church. You know, Pastor Chuck sold some stuff, made a lot of money, sold a music, Maranatha music, he started it. He still lives in the same house. He doesn't want to stumble anybody. Somebody gave him a Rolex watch. Somebody from church owned a jewelry store. You got a church of 30,000 people, there's bound to be some people in your church that own a jewelry store. And somebody gave him a Rolex watch, and he won't wear it except when the guy comes over to his house for dinner. Because what I don't want to do is wear the watch that someone gave me for free and have somebody think that I was in the ministry and used God's money to buy it because I didn't do that. Humility. It's a good thing. And here's Gideon. Now he has got more money than anybody. Right? He's elevating himself. Verse 27. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. Oh, no. Now, what is an ephod? A garment worn by who? The priest. What in the world is Gideon doing making himself an ephod? Who? Wait a minute. Only the priest wears an ephod. And he's got himself a golden ephod. And now he put it in his home city. You know why? Because the place where they were to worship was in Shiloh, which was where Ephraim was. And he wanted people to come to where he was to worship. So now he had this golden ephod and people started coming to the golden ephod to worship instead of going to the tabernacle where they should have been. See how quickly the compromise is happening? Gideon, you're great. Yeah, well, no, I'm not. The Lord's great, but if you could give me some gold. Now let me make an ephod and put it in my hometown. And it's golden. People kind of like that. Guys, we don't bow to any statues amen? amen and we don't serve any golden ephod the golden ephod to me is no different than a golden calf amen, amen. or kissing the statue of peter amen. or having a church building i'm just attached to this building that'll never happen here praise god amen <laughs> but people get attached to buildings it's not the building amen, amen. it's jesus christ whom we worship and you know when the lord made an altar he always told to make the altar plain don't even have any, you know, tools on the rocks you use. You know why? Because the focus is not to be on the altar, but the sacrifice. Amen. The focus is not to be on the building, but the Savior. Amen. People go to church, oh, the building, you've got to see the building, it's beautiful. What about Jesus? Oh, I think they talk about him there once in a while. The point is, <laughs> he's why we're here. If we're not going to talk about Jesus, put horns on the wall, call the Elks Club, be done with it, Amen. So it says here, all the, all the Israel played the harlot with it. So he put himself in a spiritual leader's position, and he led people into idolatry. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So there was peace there for 40 years, but the peace isn't going to last long, and it's going to end because of one of Gideon's children. And let's finish up. Then Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house, and Gideon had 70 sons. Now, how do you have 70 sons? 
Read on. Who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Gideon! You're acting like a king. Who has a harem? The king. Who has the gold? The king. Who puts himself in the place of spiritual leadership? The king. Look at verse 31. And his concubine was in Shechem. You got many wives and you got to have a concubine too. This is amazing. And look what it says. Also bore him a son whose name was Abimelech. You know what Abimelech is? You know what that means? You know what the name means? My father is a king. Wait a minute. You said you didn't want to be the king. But you took the gold like the king. You, made, you put yourself in a spiritual position like the king. You took many wives like the king. And then you named your son, my father is a king. Your actions are speaking a lot louder than your words. Amen? And guess what? Abimelech's going to take his name next week. We're going to see it. He's actually going to think he is a king. And he's going to cause a lot of problems. And it's all going to be because of what his father did. And you know what's sad? Is the people are going to follow Gideon's example. It says, Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abizites. Abizrites. And it says there, So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. They went right back to Baal worship. But you know what Baal was all about? Two things. Wealth and sexual immorality. Who'd they learn that from? Gideon. What was his life about? Wealth and sexual immorality. He had many wives and a concubine and 70 sons. Where did they learn it? It's not what we say that we are, but how we live before people. Gideon went a-whoring with women, and now Israel's doing the same with the false gods after he died. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all the enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Can I tell you something? We're going to close this song. Can I tell you something? I can think of a few things that would grieve my heart more than to know that after I died, all my kids walked away from God. That would absolutely break my heart. I, don't think, I can't think of anything that would be more devastating to me. It would kill me. You know why? Because I need to be living it out in front of my children so they know that the God that I serve is real and that they fall in love with Him too. Amen? And Gideon had lived out a life where he said, I don't want to be the king, but then he lived like it. And he took all these things for himself, and because of it, the people fell. Again, what's amazing to me, guess who's still in the hall of faith even after chapter 8? Guess who's there? Gideon. Didn't that encourage you that God is a gracious God? And that God can use us too? Amen? So, conqueror turned compromiser. In the beginning, he was a conqueror. He showed us how to deal with the prideful or critical brother. We saw how God feels about those who don't get involved. We see how past obedience increases future boldness. And then we saw as a compromiser that Gideon's actions spoke louder than his words. Though he refused to let them be, make him king, he began to act like one anyway. May we live life set apart for God, amen? And may we not compromise, but may we be set apart unto him in everything we do. May we not just talk it, but may we live it. And may we not say, sit idly by on the sidelines 
while eternities passing us by. Amen? May we be, be active in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your grace. We thank you for the examples we see in your word. And Lord, I pray we would apply them to our lives. Lord, that we'd be men and women of God set apart unto you. Lord, that we would take a more active role in your kingdom. Lord, that we would be worshipers and people who pray and spend time in your presence. But Lord, also, we would then have put feet to our faith. That our faith would produce action in the way we reach out and touch others around us. And Lord, may it begin right here in Santa Cruz. Holy Cross, Lord. Bring revival here and start in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.